Hey there, I'm Emlyn Miles Mattingly, your host for the Minority Money Podcast. I'm glad you're here. You know why? Because this is the place you can come to get your weekly finance, family, and fitness motivation, not only to experience success in those areas for yourself, but also to help others in our community achieve greatness too. Super happy that you're on the show with me, so let's jump right in. Welcome to the Minority Money Podcast. I'm your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, financial advisor, and president of Gen Next Wealth, a financial planning and investment firm. We are going to have a special guest with us today, someone that I've followed for the last three years. His name is Carl Richards. He's been featured in Marketplace Money, Oprah.com, Forbes.com. In addition to that, Carl has become a frequent keynote speaker at financial planning conferences using visual learning events around the world. He is a world-renowned speaker, and it all started with some simple sketches where Carl would explain complex financial concepts with a sketch. He's the author of two books. One is The One-Page Financial Plan, A Simple Way to Be Smart About Your Money, and The Behavior Gap, The Simple Way to Stop Doing Dumb Things with Your Money. So without further ado, Carl, welcome to the show. Emlyn, thank you. I'm really honored to be here and have this conversation. Super excited about it. So it all started, once again, I always talk about this. I always talk about the power of social media. So I follow Carl on Twitter and I send him a message. That message leads to us having him on the show. So I was surprised. I didn't, I didn't know if you would answer or not. And so when you did respond, I remember the first thing I, I ran over to my wife and I was like, hey, babe, you remember that guy that, that wrote the book at the Behavior Gap and this and that? And she was like, yeah, what, what about him? I was like, he's going to be on the show. She said, no way. I was like, I swear he's going to be on the show. So, so thank uh, you. I'm honored. Seriously. Thanks for inviting me. For the listeners that don't know you, could you give us a quick introduction of yourself outside of what I said? Yeah, I think one important thing to note is this story. I've told it a, a number of times, but I'm sure and your listeners may not have heard it, but I, it's important to know that when we look back on people's sort of bios, it looks like it was all planned and it all happened, and, but nothing could be further from the truth, right? Like I went in college, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was an undeclared major, which we all know what that means, right? Like I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I was married and my, my wife one day, she had graduated and she had a job and she came home one day and she's like, she's looking at the newspaper and I said, what are you doing? She said, well, I'm looking for a job. And I said, well, you have one. And she said, I know I'm, I'm looking for you. And I was like, oh, what did, you, what did you find? And she found what we both thought. I'm hesitant to tell the story because I've told it so many times, but I think for this show, it'd be particularly important. She found what we both thought was a security guard job. We thought it had the word security in it. And so I went and applied thinking like, you know, my Kung Fu skills would come in handy or something. Come to find out it was, the ad did not say security. The ad said securities, right? So I applied to be in the securities, right? Which is a big word for, you know, finance industry. I applied as a security guard, right? So I got into this industry quite by accident. And I could tell you story after story after story from that moment on that were just this sort of series of happy accidents. And I'm totally okay. Like luck and I are really good friends. I realize like we make our own luck and we increase our luck surface area and all that stuff. But in the end, there are some things that are luck. And I've had a series of really fun, happy accidents. And, you know, I got into the industry by accident. I've stayed in it on purpose because I quickly learned that this wasn't about calculators. 
right? It wasn't about math. It was about humans and the crazy things we humans do when it comes to money. So that's what's kept me in the industry now for two decades. I started noticing that stuff. I'd write about it a little bit. And again, important for people to realize like this month marks 10 years I've been writing a weekly column for the New York Times. But those early, it was my mom and my sister. You know, and I think my sister was lying. I think it was just my mom, right? Like I started noticing things and I would write about them on this little blog. I was like, that's, it's kind of dumb. It's kind of a waste of time. Why am I doing this? But I couldn't stop. But I was kind of addicted to the idea of trying to take things that some people think of as complex and make them simple. Did that, kept doing it. The only thing I think I know how to do pretty well is play in traffic. So I just sort of kept playing in traffic. And one thing led to another. That's sort of, you know, in the middle there, I had my own financial planning firm, worked at some big firms that everybody would recognize. And then I, I started my own independent firm. And then I, and I sold that and focused on writing and teaching full time. You've done so much work in the industry for advisors with the Society of Real Financial Advisors, the stuff you're doing with Kitsis, there's the books and the impact that the books have because you know it seems like the one-page financial plan is written for the consumer, but I know a lot of advisors have read the book as well. But all that, like, thank you for what you do, Carl. It's been very, very instrumental in my career, and I, I can't thank you enough. Mm, that's really kind of you. That's, I mean, I, I care a lot about the financial advice industry and more specifically the financial advice profession mainly because of the leverage that it has, right? So like I care about you, right? I care about financial advisors, but I, every time I see one of you, I think of at least a hundred families, right? And then I think of your email list and your, so maybe that impact is, you know, around a hundred families. And then it's also spreads out to your community and the world. And I think like, wow, if there were 10,000 of you, you know, 10,000 times a hundred families, that's a million, you know, like that's what I see. And I just see, look, we, money is still, I've, and I travel all over the world to speak about this topic and I get hundreds of emails a week from the column and what I'm hearing still, and I've been hearing this for a decade, if we had to use one word to describe how we feel about money worldwide, the word would be anxious. We've got to change that. And the only hope I see is sort of the model of all the wisdom traditions. I love to use, you know, Jesus as the ultimate model, right? He didn't change the world by making big pronouncements. He did that. But the change he made was one person by one person by one person. And that's what I see, like one advisor helping one family and then the next family and the next family. And that's what keeps me doing this work is that, that compound impact that we can have as financial advisors. And I realize, like, as I'm saying this, that there's so many fake ones, so much garbage still in the industry, so many crooks and criminals. So that makes it even more important for the few real ones to be doing their work loudly. Absolutely. I almost got in trouble with that after I started listening to some of the podcasts, read the book, calling out advisors that were just selling products and not doing real financial advice. Yeah, it costs, it costs. I have a reputation for doing that. If you're an advisor and you're doing something that I don't feel is right, I will tell you. But, you know, I did want to touch on a few things today in our conversation. And, and one of them is the behavior gap, not so much just the book, but just the overall concept of the behavior gap. And I wanted to make that kind of the conversation that we had today. So as it pertains, because you said anxiety is a big 
deal with money. So what is the behavior gap for those that don't know? Yeah, so the behavior gap started out as a very specific concept and it's now really, we've expanded it. So I'll start with the specific and move to the expanded sort of version of it. The specific was just around investing. And maybe the best way to explain this is imagine, you know, if all your listeners can imagine that they open a magazine and they see an ad and the ad is for an investment, we'll just call this investment a mutual fund. And this particular investment, it says that the return, so if you imagine maybe a bar graph on the ad and it has a return for 10 years, this specific investment has done 10%. We'll just make the math really easy. 10 years, 10% per year. That's what the ad says. So that's the investment return. That's what the investment has done. And this sounds really kind of crazy, but people are not investments. (laughs) So we need to realize there's a difference between investors, like people, and investments. And so the investment, let's just say, has done 10%. I'm hesitant to use numbers. Don't get caught up in the numbers. Investment's done 10%. When we look and see what the average person who owned that mutual fund during that 10 years, at some point during that 10 years, I mean, we should make this clear. If you put your money in at the beginning of the 10 years and you didn't add or take any away, you left it there for the whole 10 years, you would have gotten the same return as the investment return. I mean, maybe there was, most of those are net of fees. So you would have gotten the same return, your return. In that case, the investment and the investor the return would have been the same. But nobody invests that way, right? Nobody puts money in for 10 years and stays there. Nobody buys long-term investments and holds on to them for the long term. That would be silly. What we do, it's because we think, and again, I do this, You like humans do this. This isn't like smart advisors and dumb people. Humans do this. So if you're listening to this and you've done this, you are not alone. It just simply means you're human. What we do instead is we buy an investment that we read about or we hear about on the financial pornography network, the circus clowns are yelling something on the TV and we say, oh, we should go buy that because we think that's what it means to be an investor. And that's reasonable. We've been trained. We buy that thing. And then typically it's a year to 18 months later, that thing doesn't do so well. Normally just because it's normal market cycles, but we don't know that. And then we, we look at it and we think, geez, that hasn't done well. And then we see the circus clowns on the financial pornography network yelling about some new exciting thing. And we switch to that. All because we think that's what it means to be an investor. It's all well-intentioned. So if, like, if you've done that, me too. But what we're doing when we look at it is we're systematically buying high and selling low and repeating. The narrow version is when you look at the average investor has dramatically underperformed the investments they owned. That's just a gap due to our own behavior. And so that's the narrow, the wide version is the behavior gap is any behavior. Any, and I like to make this clear, any well-intentioned behavior. It's any time we think we're doing something that's supposed to be in our best interests, and it turns out it's not. We do this with savings. We do this with spending. We do this with the types of life insurance we buy. We do this with our time. We do this with our diet. We do this with our exercise. We think we're like, oh, that behavior will help us. And it turns out that it doesn't. That's the concept. And one last thing, gaps in our behavior. We will do anything. We came with 
software pre-installed that really drives us to avoid seeing those gaps because they hurt. They're also the source of growth, right? But they hurt. And I think of them as blind spots. And by definition, like you can't see your own. I can't see my own. So we'll do anything to avoid them. And what we're trying to do, what I think of my work as is trying to systematically expose people to those gaps, sometimes as a drill sergeant, but other times more often I try to do as as an empathetic friend. Just grab your hand and say, let's just carefully look at this. I don't think it's serving you well, right? Sometimes I have to be all up in your face and be the drill sergeant, but mostly it's empathetic friend. And I can be an empathetic friend because I've got massive gaps in my own behavior and I'll do anything to avoid them. And I've hired specific people to help me systematically expose my life to them because I know diving into those gaps is where all of the growth is. Right. So that's the really sort of broad concept of the behavior. And so when you're reading that and you see, you know, you look at all behaviors, not only financial, but, you know, you can take that concept and apply it to health. You can take that concept and apply it to your family. You can take that concept and apply it to education. I think it fits in with everything that we're trying to talk about here on the podcast. The thing I like that you take your approach is with the behavioral financial approach, not beating yourself up. I was looking at something you posted on Twitter the other day, and it was about mistakes that people make, and then they beat themselves up like they're never supposed to make a mistake. I can't remember exactly what you said, but it was something along the lines of that. What are some common mistakes, money mistakes that people make that are okay? Not saying that you continue to do that, but it's okay if you make that mistake. We just need to make sure that we correct the behavior to fix it going forward. So the first thing we have to get clear about, Emlyn, like you and I both know this, we all make those mistakes. Like there was no part of this plan called life that didn't involve making mistakes. So the first thing we have to do is give ourselves permission to not only make them, but to feel all the range of emotions that comes when we do. Like if that means you're pissed, be pissed for a little bit. Like if it means you're sad and disappointed, Be sad or disappointed for a minute. Like, I think this might be stereotypical, but I think it's generally true. Yeah, no, it is. I think generally it's true, especially men. Like, be okay being sad, right? Be okay admitting you made a mistake. I know that's a struggle for women too in a completely different way, but I understand the male part of it because I happen to be male. So I can say like, so first we have to give ourselves permission that's called being human. I think what happens is we make a mistake, we cram it down. We're like, I'm not supposed to make mistakes and I'm certainly not supposed to be sad and I don't want to be weak, so I can't appear. I certainly am not going to tell my spouse or my partner about this because that would be appearing weak and that's not what we do. We never get off this white horse, right? So I'm simply saying, climb off your horse a little bit and say, first, it's all right, feel sad, right? So with that caveat, (laughs) a blown budget, that's a mistake we make. I mean, most people can relate to that. Like, I don't know if it's daily, but weekly, but certainly monthly. Like, darn it, I said I wouldn't do that, and I did it again. So what happens is the first step to this is acknowledging, like, the first step is having a tool to measure so you know when you've gone off course, right? Like, if we're using blown budget, like, okay, let's have a budget first. And a budget, oh man, we could spend our whole time talking about that word. And all I mean is like, 
we want you spending more on the things that bring you happiness and security. And we want you ruthlessly weeding out the stuff that doesn't. A budget really is just aligning your spending with what you say is important to you. I think that's such an important point that you're making there, aligning your budget with what's important to you. Because I think people, like as soon as you say the word budget, they think, oh, I can't spend this. I can't buy that. I can't do this. No, if you have money that's allotted to buy those things that you like to buy, if you've checked the other boxes, like the things that you're supposed to be doing, you're putting enough money away for future, you're putting enough money away for, you know, like whether it's retirement or college savings or whatever it is, if you have those things in line, you have your stuff taken care of, then, you know, it's okay to buy some things that you like every once in a while, not just put all your money away and think I can't buy anything. And I think people have a misconception of a budget thinking that that means I can't buy anything. Yeah, no, for sure. Budgeting has got a massive, massive marketing problem. It's a little bit like flossing, right? Like there's no way we're going to change that. But I think if we understand like, no, it's just about me being intentional It's about me doing it on purpose and considering sort of some longer term things. And what happens when you start doing that is you start to notice like some of the things you start to notice, like some of the things that you thought were making you happy aren't. And you notice that and they're not bad. Like I'll give you an example, going to the movies with friends. We used to do that all the time and we'd go out to dinner and then we'd go to the movies and the movies are awesome. Like I love going to the movies, especially every once in a while when it's been a hard week and I just want to check out. And But I'm not getting a lot of value from the friendship. Like if the purpose is friendship, what if we invited people over to the house and we cooked together and we had a chance to, this is the important thing about personal finance. It's personal. <laughs> you may love going to the movie with friends. And if you do, then you want to have money set aside to go do that. And you want to feel awesome. Like you said, if you know you've ticked the other boxes it makes that experience richer, right? Like this is awesome because I'm all in. But we recognized, you know what? We always thought that that brought us, but we enjoy it more if we invite people over to the house and we hang out or, or we go for a hike or we do something else. So all I'm saying is be intentional. The question you asked was, what are some behaviors that people, blowing a budget is like the easiest one to pick on. Spending money that you're like, darn, putting money on the credit card for some new shoes. And you're like, darn, I promised myself I'd stop doing that. Okay, in that moment, first things we're going to do is no shame or blame. Shame and blame. Now, you can feel guilt and you can feel responsibility, but you can't feel shame or blame because they do no good. Responsibility or guilt says that was dumb. Shame says I am dumb, right? So we, we don't feel any shame or blame, but we do sit in that feeling. Darn it, I can't believe I did that again. And then we just say, oh, okay. And we re-resolve. What often happens is you say, darn it, I didn't do that again. We push it down and then we repeat. And we're going to just keep our resolve. Like this is too important, right? Like getting yourself to a point where you have the freedom to do whatever it is is important to you. However you define that is too important. It's too important. And I know the work you're doing, it's too important for you personally, but it's also too important for the next generation and the next generation to break some of these habits that have sort of kept us bound, if you will, it's too important. And so, yeah, that's what we do. That's a behavior about budgeting is a behavior that we keep bumping up against. So I think this is kind of two parts, but do you have any advice for how people can break some of those bad money habits or kind of those things? Like you said, it happens, we figure it out, we push it down, it happens again. Is there any way to break that cycle? Yep, there is. 
It's really simple. It's not to be confused with easy. I think the key to it is just awareness and intention. So let's just get really specific. Let's pretend, let's just stick with this cash flow sort of, I like to call it aligned spending, not necessarily budgeting, but let's just use the word budgeting forever. Let's try and take that word back. So budgeting, let's say you establish like, look, I want to start saving $50 a month for my kids' education accounts. Here's the typical way you should do this. You should track your spending for, let's just say you track your spending for 30 days. Write down every single thing you spend. You could use some fancy software if you want to, but all you really have to do is write down every single thing you spend money on. Keep a little notebook with your, I love keeping like a three by five note card, hide in your pocket or whatever. You just write a little note like 7-Eleven, $7.40. You just become aware. No shame or blame. You're not beating yourself up. You're not even trying to change behavior. I think you let go of changing behavior. Forget it. You're not even trying to make any change. Just notice. So then you say, okay, one of the really important things for me is I want there to be some money for my kids to go to school. I'm just picking a common goal. And you say, all right, I'd like to save 50 bucks a month, but I don't have 50 bucks right now. Then we have that 30 days worth of data that we can look at and go, okay, where could I get 50 bucks? Is there anything on this list that's less important than that goal? And I'm not saying there should be. Like that's, there's no value. There's no morality in this discussion. And let's just say you look and you're like, oh, hey, you know what? That thing I'm doing right there, I do it five times a month. Each time I do it, it's 10 bucks. That's less important than this goal. Okay, so you found something. So now this next month, you're just simply gonna notice, like you set an intention. Instead of doing that five times, I wanna do this. And here's like a little trick. I love like the physical nature of like the envelope system. So every time you go to do that thing that costs 10 bucks, you could just instead grab 10 bucks, $10 bill, put it in an envelope, marked daughter's education fund. At the end of the month, if there's 50 bucks in there, you take the 50 bucks and you go put it in the education account. That's a really physical way. You could do all that electronically, obviously, but that's a really physical way of seeing. So then let's say you get to the end of the month and there's only 20 bucks in there and you did that thing three times. Well, you notice that. No shame, no blame. You don't beat yourself up. You don't hit yourself with a stick. You don't look so much of the personal finance stuff is about making yourself feel bad. Nobody voluntarily signs up to feel bad. Right? Like flip yourself with a rubber band, you know, whack yourself on the back with a stick, like none of that stuff. Make it more painful. So what we're gonna do instead is we're just gonna notice, oh, okay, I had a goal of 50 bucks in here. You open the envelope, <laughs> there's only 20 in there. Okay, well, it looks like I did that thing three times. All right, let's leave the $20 in the envelope. Let's reset. Let's try it again this month. Okay, cool. At the end of the month, we look in there and there's $60, meaning we did it four times. You know, okay, we missed one, but there's 60 bucks. Let's send that off to the education account. Like, that's how we do it. We do it gently. Sometimes you need to be all in your face, and that's fine. If you're feeling in your face and you're like, dude, why did you do that 30 days? Maybe you hire a friend. You say, hey, man, at the end of the month, I want you to ask me about this envelope. And if there's not $50 in the envelope, I want you to punch me in the face, right? If there is $50 in the envelope, I want you to give me a high five. And maybe you do that. Whatever you need to do to motivate yourself, but you just, and then we recommit every month. 
in the academic literature, we humans and money are definitely what's called a complex adaptive system. <laughs> and a complex adaptive system, the best way to solve a complex adaptive system is you take a step in the direction you think you want to go, and then you reset and you repeat. And we're just not going to give up. And then if you need, when you feel like giving up, let yourself feel like giving up. Be bummed, be depressed, be mad. And then at the end of it, go, all right, but having money for my kid's education, too important for me, I'm not going to give up. So that's how we connect to a deeper goal. We connect to like a hell yeah goal, right? And then we just slowly try to align our behavior with meeting that goal. That's how you break bad money habits. I think if you can attach that habit or that goal to a greater good, like you're saying something that's important to you. And I think that goes back to aligning your money and your values, right? If you value something, you have to attach your habit to the value, which will make you in turn say, okay, you know what? I have to be able to stop doing this so I can achieve my ultimate goal. Now I'm going to stumble. I'm going to fall. I'm going to mess up. Thing I love to talk about is my son. He just recently started learning how to walk. This kid has fallen so many times. He's fallen on his butt. He's fallen on his knees. He's fallen. I mean, he's just fallen everywhere. He's not gotten discouraged. He hasn't looked back. He has not stopped trying to walk. Okay. And I think that's how you break a habit. You just keep forging forward. It's going, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to mess up here and there. But I think over time, you're going to continue to get it and you'll get better at it. And I don't think he's ever been discouraged once by falling. Totally. That's a great example. Yeah, I think Stephen Covey said, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but he said something like, the key to saying no is to have a much deeper yes. And this all points back to like most people. And by the way, my dear listener friend, if you have not had these kind of conversations about what's important, you are like most people. So it's, it's okay. But let's sort of resolve, like, first, we need to have that conversation. Like, what is important to you? And maybe just write it down and realize it's going to be clumsy. And especially if you're, you've got a spouse or a partner involved in it, like nobody's taught you how to have this discussion. Be gentle with one another. Like you may come from a background, like we've all got a ton of money baggage. Your spouse's parents may have said to her over and over, don't be spoiled. And she thinks talking about money means being spoiled. Like, well, we got to unwind that, right? You know, it may have been about, I mean, I could tell you, a hundred stories about these things where we get behind it. You know, it's this big fight. Here, let me tell you one quick story. A friend of mine comes to me and he's like, and I want to be clear, This I'm picking on this story. This is the wife spending money and the husband complaining about it. I'm not making a gender statement. It's not generally true. It's just the story, right? The wife wants to buy a new car. And he's like, I don't get it. Like everything else in our lives, she's not worried about the appearance. Like she wants his understanding. She wants a fancy, nice new car. And he's like, she doesn't care about, you know, like appearance of her clothes. She doesn't care about the house we live in. She doesn't care about being flash for anybody. Right. Like, and this car is driving me crazy. It's like, I don't know what to do. We've had arguments over it. And he's like, and then one day I decided to ask her. I was like, Oh, that's a crazy idea. You just, you decided to ask. He's like, I just said, what's the deal with this car? Like, I don't understand. Like everything else, why do you need a fancy new car? Right? He had made this story up. Turns out he'd made it. She said, oh, oh, honey, no. No, 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 no. Doesn't have anything to do with fancy or new. My growing up, 
my dad always had these old unreliable cars and they would break down. One time they broke down when he was dropping me off at school in front of all the other kids. One time it broke down out in the country. We didn't have a way to get back. My friend was like in tears at this point, like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. She said, no, what I meant to say was reliable, right? And suddenly everything changes and you realize like, oh, how can we do it tomorrow? Like, rely, okay, you know, like, so if you haven't had these conversations, give each other room because it starts by identifying a big yes, a big goal, and then saying, all right, let's just slowly start being aware of how our behavior lines up with that goal. And then let's go search for found, I like to call it found money, like misaligned money. And let's search every month. I've got buddies that have been doing this for 10 or 15 years now. And the amount of money they're saving every month, just because they keep aligning and, oh, I found an extra 10 bucks, right? They're excited about that. Sorry for the long story, but that's how you do it. And I think that goes back to the conversation because I think the conversation piece, especially when you have a partner, I have people come in all the time and I haven't had one person come in and say that they don't want their kids to go to school you know, go to college. Most people, you know, that's kind of an American thing. They want their kids to go to college. It's just kind of what we've been ingrained in. And so I'll sit people down and, you know, we're going to talk about going to college. And so then we talk about how the kids are going to go to college. And so spouses are sitting there and I'm saying, okay, so what are we going to do? One spouse is like, you know, we're going to pay for all of the school. Okay, that's fine. Then we'll start doing this. The other one is like, nope, you know what? They need to have some skin in the game. They need to work and go to school. And then I'm sitting there looking at them and I'm like, this is the first time they've had this. Com- Both of them want the kids to go to school. Both of them want the same thing. This is the first time they've had the conversation about how and it's in front of me. And so if that's the disconnect amongst spouses, what other things are we disconnecting on as it comes to communication with our spouse, especially pertaining around money, because it's always been taboo to talk about it. So. I always think about if we're going to break those habits, we're going to have that conscious spending. But on the same token, we want to be able to make sure we have those lines of communication open all the time to help make sure that we're on the same page trying to accomplish the same goal. I, like you, I've had that. I've been shocked. You're like, what? You guys have been married for 15 years and it's the first time you learned this? Like my friends, Darren and Allison, we were having a conversation with them. They've been married 10 years. And we were having this conversation and I'm sort of a freak about this stuff. So I like to ask these sorts of questions at dinner, right? Like with friends, I was like, what's important about money to you guys? And they're having this conversation and Allison starts and Allison's like, you know, I really want to travel more. Like ultimately I want to travel more. And Darren, I'm not kidding, fell out of his chair. He was like, what, what, what are you, what are you talking about? I've never heard you say you want to travel. I had no idea. I love to travel. We haven't traveled. And she was like, what? What do you mean you've never heard me say it? Like, suddenly I can promise you, I can absolutely promise you, I would be willing to put money on this. <laughs> there are things you don't know about your spouse and money or your partner and money, right? And, and this thing you think is the thing isn't the thing, right? There's a thing behind it. And simple ways to have those conversations, like let's just say money's really tense because it often is. I get a lot of email about like, my spouse won't even talk about it. You know, one of the easy ones to do is just like, you know, next time you're on a walk or hanging out or whatever, how about just like enter really gently? Like, hey, I was listening to this podcast. They were talking about money and made me think about us. And you could say something like, 
what's your earliest memory of money? Or what was money like in your house? Like, and then let's say, what's your earliest memory of money? And somebody says, oh, geez, I remember this and this and this and this. And then just be like, oh, cool. What movie do you want to go to? And bank that one. Like, we just had a conversation about money and no one fought, right? Like, just sort of give yourself permission to build slow, be gentle, all that stuff. But the key is, what you want to do is get like some shared goal, right? This thing's really important to us. Okay, then that gives us the baseline to start saying, if that's really important to us, what are the things that might not be so important that we could say no to so we could say yes to that? I think that's a very, very important topic. And I'm glad we spent some time on there. I want to get into the, so the podcast is Minority Money Podcast, where we're trying to change the complexion of wealth. So what I always like to ask my guests is about, you know, what motivates, inspires you to grow and to learn? Like, what was your inspiration, Carl? Yeah, it's a good question. I first have to tell you that when I got, when you first invited me on the Minority Money podcast, I was like, what's Evelyn going to find about me? Like, what, where are we going to find a minority piece? <laughs> like, like, <laughs> I'm a 49-year-old white male with no hair. <laughs> but I think it's great to have you on because I think when it comes to behavioral finance and things that are going on, I don't think there's anybody better. So I think the community Welcome. That's why I thought that. I looked. I throw with my left hand and I write with my right hand. So let's go with that. That puts me in some minority camp somewhere, right? Like <laughs> I'm telling you, the left-handed people, there's a left-handed scholarship that they have in high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We can fit you in there. Somewhere, yeah, yeah. So that's so good. What keeps me motivated to learn is I'm just endlessly fascinated by humans and our behavior. And I think time and money are really awesome prisms, lenses to view that behavior. Because both, like we can measure how we spend time and money. I think if I want to know what you care about, I'm kind of interested in what you would say if I said, Emlyn, what do you care about? I'd be kind of interested. But I'd be way more interested in what your checkbook and your calendar tells me about in the academic work, they call that revealed preferences, right? Like I'm way more interested in your revealed preferences. So, so that's what keeps me interested is like, how can we humans behave in ways that are more aligned? What can we do? That's what keeps me driven to learn more about my list of stuff I want to learn is way longer than my list of things that I have learned. I feel like the more I'm learning about the subject, the less I know. That's actually deep, like the keeps you wanting to learn. Because you love to learn and you find out that you don't know as much as you think. And so it drives you to learn more. Totally. Interesting thought. I, I like that. Do you think that education plays a big part in wealth building? Ooh. Well, that's what the data would say. I want the answer to be no. And I think given the sort of just the cost of education in the States. So let's broaden the definition of education and then I can say absolutely. And let's broaden the definition to include trade school and, you know, learning a skill and being educated, absolutely it plays a role, right? And does that mean you need to go to a traditional university? No. And I think more than ever now, like I, I was just reading, you know, there's a lot of people kind of almost setting up their own MBA programs where they're like, okay, I'm going to read these hundred books. I'm going to take the money that I would have spent on tuition and I'm going to you know, invest or, or become a, like, I'm going to lose it all trying to learn how to be a private equity investor because that's what you'll do. 
you know, like I'm going to use that money. I'm going to hire specific tutors, right? Like I'm going to pay 200 bucks to spend an hour with this person. But that all points to the same thing. Like there's a drive to learn and a drive to be educated. But having said all that, man, you go get an accounting degree. Like if you just sort of grit your teeth, I hate accounting. You just grit your teeth and get an accounting degree or a computer programming degree or an engineering degree. At least you have that foundation, right? At least you have that foundation. So whatever it is, like you can't be sitting around playing video games and expecting it to work out. That's a fair answer. It's surprising to me, not surprising, but I've heard the common theme with all of my guests that formalized academic education isn't the only way that can play a role in wealth building. And I want people to hear that. I want people to hear it all the time because it is a critical part, but I think self-education plays a part in that. There's tons of ways that you can get education. It's not just your formalized education. Just real quickly, like if you think formalized education is the answer and you go there without the desire to learn, <laughs> you're just going to spend a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. And, that, and there's plenty of schools that will take that money from you. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. As we wrap up here, if you could offer our listeners one piece of advice, what would it be? Yeah, would you just start paying attention? Let's start with spending. Like just start paying attention to how you're spending money. Like just make it a new rule. Every time you pull out that credit card or cash, every time just notice what you're doing. That's it. Like don't beat yourself up. Just notice what you're doing. And I think by the pure function, the power of awareness will drive you to change behavior in ways that will make you happier. You don't even have to have behavior change as a goal, but just notice, right? Because there's too much, and especially sort of with your goals as you've laid out for the podcast, there's too much at stake here, right? There, there's too much at stake here. My parents were divorced when I was eight. I didn't have a lot of training around how to do this stuff, but I was in a neighborhood and in a school where there were role models and examples all over the place. I can't imagine the kind of hurdle of not having that. And we have to change that, right? Like if we didn't have that growing up, like I didn't have a mom and a dad around growing up. My kids have a mom and a dad around growing up. Having those sort of role models and making that change is up to us. And it's just too important. And the only way we can do a bit of that right? Slowly over time, especially when it comes to freedom, personal freedom is to start by being aware of how we're using money. Let me ask you a question. What do you think the biggest change needs to happen in particularly in, in the community that you're serving? What do you think the biggest change? Like if you could just be like king for a day, like I declare this change happened, what would it be? It would be bestowing financial literacy to like basic level literacy, basic level financial literacy, how to budget, how to save basic principles. Cause I go talk at high schools a lot. I do it every year. I go out and I have this series that I do with high schoolers, the amount of information they don't know about basic concepts of money. Like one of the things I tell them, I said, get out your pencils, everybody write this down. Okay. Get it out, write it down. Don't spend more money than you make. And they're like, really, that's it. I said, look, it, as you know, the United States marginal propensity to spend is more than what we make. If they would take that one piece of advice in this community, especially not to spend more than they make, set 
some micro actions, which we didn't even get into that, to help them trigger how to do the things that they want to do, whether it's budgeting. And I think budgeting is such an integral part of what we're doing for people or what I think people need to do. Because if you're listening to this and there's always too much month at the end of the money, we need to change that. And the only way we can change that is by monitoring, tracking what you're doing and building from there. Because now that you know what you have to do, it's on you to go do it and align your values with what's important to you and put your money in those places that are important. And so if I was king for a day and I could do anything and drop something on someone, that's what it would be. The basic financial literacy at a young age. One thing that's important to understand about that is there's two levers there. There's income and expenses. And we've spent most of our time talking about expenses. And the cool news is that's the right way to do it. Like first you get square on that and you may say, well, there's nothing I can cut back on. Okay. Well now we know we have an income problem and then we can devote time and energy to that, like upskilling and finding new jobs. And I realize like it's easy to say, and it sounds so simple. It's not easy. I get it. But at first you got to get clear, but What's the biggest cultural obstacle to that happening? Is it just no role models? Is it just like, what is the biggest cultural obstacle to good financial habits in the audience that you serve? I think the biggest thing is, there's a few things. I think it's lack of, like after so many years, generational. We talked about this in the beginning. The name of my firm is Generational Wealth. So when I was looking at the generational wealth of the clients or the lack thereof. This was from years of money mismanagement or not knowing how to manage money. And then you look out into the landscape and you see other people that have made it. And I do that with air quotes. And so there's a disconnect between the generations of always having less and never, you know, operating from a position of scarcity, if you will. And so now you have that position of scarcity and most of the stuff we're talking about doing is going to take a long time for it to actually show up, right? And so the way that you can bypass waiting so long is to make some purchases. And this is where you see, like we talked about that, this is where you might see somebody making a purchase of a fancy car well before they're able to afford it. This is where someone buys more house than they can afford. And we've seen that happen in 2008 when we had the housing crisis and we had seen all these different things. So if I had to say what it was attributed to, I think it's years, generations, if you will, of not having financial education and then trying to supplement the long-term behaviors of having gathering assets by short-term behaviors and buying shiny things. Yeah. Amen. And especially that's where I think the big cultural problem comes into play. And this is not unique to any specific culture, but when I say cultural, like, I mean, the people around you, because everybody around you, right? Well, they can afford that. They're doing that. My brother's doing that. My cousin's doing that. My neighbor's doing that. Like, why can't I? The new water ski boat, the new car, the new whatever. I guess what I would tell you, you, you could say the same thing, is just remember, there's a big difference between, somebody referred to it as, there's a big difference between having a big hat. Warren Buffett, I think, is the one that said that big hat, no cattle right? There's plenty of people walking around. Most, most people are walking around with big hats and no cattle. And if you want to have cattle, like we could say, if you want to have freedom, right? The best way to do that is 
wear a small hat for a little while. Absolutely. And I think that goes back to everything that you're saying. Carl, I have to thank you so much for coming on. It's absolute pleasure having you on the show. I hope the listeners enjoy this as much as I did because you asked me some questions. I haven't had a guest ask me questions that made me think like that. So I appreciate the question. Where can my listeners find you at? You can type Carl Richards in the Google machine and take your choice. I think you know Twitter's fun. Probably the best place is the Behavior Gap weekly newsletter. So if you go to behaviorgap.com, you can sign up for that weekly newsletter. But far more important than that is continuing to follow the work that you're doing. So Emma, let me just tell you, like, thank you for the work you're doing. It's generous. You're doing stuff that you don't need to be doing. And it's amazing. And we need more people like you. So thanks for the work you're doing. Thank you, Carl. I appreciate that. Coming from you, that means a lot, especially with the influence that you've had on my career and moves that I've made. So I thank you for that. I really do. Cheers. Another great showdown, but it doesn't have to stop there. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and whatever podcast app you're listening on now and give it a good rating, would you? If you feel really connected to the podcast, which I hope you do, find our Facebook community, Minority Money VIP, to support and be supported by others just like you. And again, we're glad to have you. While this podcast is meant to inspire and motivate you to live your best life, it can't be your complete one-stop shop. I know, I know, that really sucks. But I don't know anything about your specific situation, so please reach out to an attorney or CPA, or you can reach out to me, a financial planner, to help you with your specific situation. To get a hold of us, please reach us at fan at Minority Money Podcast. That's F-A-N at Minority Money Podcast so we can get to know you there. Thanks for being here and until next time.